1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with Jim Campbell. He's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. The Alliance Defending Freedom has been removed from the Amazon Smile program. We'll tell you how the... Southern Poverty Law Center is playing a role in that and what's uh, what's happened that he'll join us uh, in our next segment. We're also going to talk uh, with Joyce Newmeyer. She's the president of Adventist Health Pacific Northwest Region. Portland Adventist is in partnership with OHSU, and uh, this partnership is going to yield some significant benefits for the uh, metropolitan area. We'll talk more about that and we'll share a conversation I had uh, some time ago with Ryan Anderson, the author of When Harry Became Sally. Uh, This is uh, dealing with the transgender moment we find ourselves in. The book is published by Encounter. He'll be uh, on at the uh, five o'clock hour. Well, when three Americans newly freed from detention in North Korea arrived at Andrews uh, Air Force Base in Maryland early on Thursday morning, 2 a.m., or about 2.30 to be more precise, President Donald Trump was there to greet them, along with Melania. The president was joined by his wife and Vice President Mike Pence. A motorcade was uh, waiting to take the three Korean-American detainees, Kim Dong-chul, Kim hak Song, and Tony Kim, to Walter Reed National uh, Military Medical Center for physical examination. The White House said earlier that they would be evaluated and receive medical treatment at the Washington area facility. Their families were not on hand for the ceremony when they arrived, however. When the plane did arrive from Alaska, where it stopped Wednesday after leaving North Korea, the president and first lady climbed aboard to greet the men, stayed there for several minutes. After the president emerged with the three Americans, he addressed the media saying, I really think that he, Kim Jong-un, uh, wants to do something. Trump publicly thanked North Korean uh, ruler for releasing the prisoners, regarded it as a sign of easing tensions as the two leaders hope to strike a deal toward peace on the Korean peninsula in the forthcoming summit. Now, some were very critical that the president wasn't, um, uh, didn't have harsher tones for Kim Jong Un, who really didn't have any Uh, Right to hold these U.S. citizens at all. But in view of the event that was announced uh, to be taking place on the 12th of June, one might perhaps allow a bit of latitude. Nonetheless, North Korea's official news agency said Kim's move to grant the three Americans amnesty came at the official suggestion of the U.S. president. Well, the former hostages, as the president uh, called them, left North Korea early Wednesday, accompanied by U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who had been criticized by the media because they didn't know where he was Mm. Well, this is a special night for these three really great people, Trump told reporters as he stood on the tarmac on the U.S. relationship with North Korea. He said, we are starting off on a new footing. Well, the freed prisoners appeared tired but in excellent spirits, flashing peace signs as they emerged from the aircraft. They were joined by a translator who said it's like a dream and that the men were very, very happy to be free. North Korea has accused the, had rather accused the detainees of anti-state activities. Their arrests were widely seen as politically motivated and compounded the dire state of U.S. North Korean relations over the isolated nation's nuclear program. Uh, The three had been uh, held for uh, periods ranging between one to two years. They were the latest in a series of Americans who have been detained in North Korea in recent years for seemingly minor offenses. We would like to express our deep appreciation to the United States government, President Trump, Secretary Pompeo and the people of the United States for bringing us home. The three said in an earlier statement released by the State Department. Well, the uh, three Americans and Pompeo flew on separate government planes because they received checkups during the flight from Japan. And the larger plane was better equipped to accommodate the medical equipment. Trump called it a great honor to welcome home the three North Korean detainees, but said the true honor is going to be if we have a victory in getting rid of nuclear weapons. Although few details have been revealed uh, regarding the high stakes foreign policy effort between Trump and Kim, Singapore has emerged as the likely host of the summit that will take place later Um, in June, mid-June to be precise, as the president sets his sights on denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. President Trump made a point of publicly thanking North Korea's leaders for the prisoner's release uh, and uh, hailed it as a sign of cooling tensions and growing opportunity on the Korean Peninsula. Well, North Korea's uh, prisoner release, three down, 119,997 To go, to put it into perspective, Kim Dong-chul, a pastor, was convicted of spying in April of 2016, sentenced to 10 years hard labor. Tony Kim and Kim Hak-sung uh, professors at Pyongyang University of Science and Technology were taken into custody in early 2017. The former was charged with espionage, the latter with hostile acts. Calls to release the three prisoners took on new urgency last year after Americans witnessed the, eff- the effects, rather, of North Korea's detention on another American, 22-year-old college student, Otto Warmbier. North Korean authorities released him last June, sending him home in a comatose state. He died within days of his arrival. His tragic death was a wake-up call to many Americans who previously didn't know about or felt removed from the abuses committed regularly by the North Korean regime. What's so encouraging about North Korea's decision to release the three Americans is what it signals, that the regime is not immune from criticism of its human rights record. Their release should embolden U.S. negotiators to raise other pressing human rights issues at the summit, which is scheduled for June the 12th. The U.S. should also take great pains to communicate to North Korea that there will be consequences if the Kim regime should once again take Americans hostage. The odds of that happening were sharply reduced when the U.S. imposed a travel ban following Warren Bear's return. It greatly discouraged the average traveler from venturing into North Korea. Still, it is possible that Pyongyang might once again incarcerate Americans still in North Korea if the regime feels it might give it leverage in its dealings with Washington. It's not sufficient, however, for the Trump administration to address human rights concerns only as they pertain to the regime's treatment of Americans. After all, Pyongyang authorities continue to hold hostage citizens of Japan and South Korea, our two great regional allies. Also, the regime's severe abuse of its own people deserves to be given more... uh, then, a footnote in the upcoming talks north korea 's political prison camps hold eighty thousand to one hundred and twenty thousand in captivity in conditions rivaling those in nazi germany 's concentration camps or the soviet gulags the u s should highlight this uh, should highlight rather this aberrant behavior. Negotiators should consider pressing for humanitarian access to the prisoners in those camps and take steps to encourage North Korea to eventually shutter prison camps for good. It's a critical issue, literally a matter of life and death for thousands, if not tens of thousands in North Korea. Uh, North Koreans themselves. President Donald Trump denounced North Korea's human rights abuses in his State of the Union address, you might recall. And Vice President Mike Pence poignantly revived the issue by inviting Warren father to join him for the opening ceremonies of the Winter Olympics in South Korea. But the administration has thus far given little indication that human rights will be a topic of discussion at the upcoming summit. South Korea failed to broach the topic during the inter-Korean summit in April. The U.S. should not repeat Seoul's mistake. Pyongyang's release of the three prisoners is a positive step, a goodwill gesture that signals a willingness to negotiate at the upcoming summit. However, it's nothing more than that, a first step. The road to denuclearization is a long one. The road to ridding North Korea of human rights abuses is even longer. But even the longest journey begins, as they say, with a single step. The U.S.-North Korea summit op- offers opportunities for taking a necessary step In the right direction. A second step. It is the right moment to raise human rights and communicate with the Kim regime that the North Korea, um, that North Korea rather, will not earn legitimacy if it continues to violate the most basic rights of the North Korean people. Again, three down, 119,997 to go. And by the way, among those being held in North Korea are many believers. Well, President Trump tweeted today that his highly anticipating meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong Un will take place in Singapore on June the twelfth. Let's pray. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Jim Campbell, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We're going to talk about ADF versus Amazon Smile. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Alliance Defending Freedom has won seven cases at the U.S. Supreme Court in as many years, including one that upheld an Arizona school choice program and another that prevented the state of Missouri from discriminating against a Christian preschool. The legal powerhouse, which fights for religious freedom, is awaiting decisions in two more landmark free speech cases that argued this term before the Supreme Court. Alliance Defending Freedom is counted as one of the most successful legal advocacy organizations in the country. But even that stellar record wasn't enough to prevent Alliance Defending Freedom from being banned from participating in Amazon Smile, which allows Amazon.com customers to contribute 0.5% of eligible purchases to almost 1 million eligible 501c3 public charitable organizations. ADF has been one of those charitable uh, organizations since 2013. The launch of Amazon Smile Until recently, when those who had assigned the legal organization as their uh, charity were notified that it was no longer eligible. The reason? Well, simply put, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Here to talk with us about what's happened is Jim Campbell. He's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me. Well,
2: let's begin by talking about Amazon Smile and the relationship uh, ADF had uh, with that, uh, that program.
3: Sure. So Amazon Smile, as you said, is is an organization in which a wide variety of charitable groups can participate, and it allows Amazon's customers to select uh, a charitable organization that it would like a small portion of its purchase proceeds to go to. ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, was participating in that program, and anyone who supported our organization was able to direct a small portion of uh, their Amazon purchases to come to Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, That, however, all came to an end a few weeks ago when we were informed that uh, we'd been removed from the program. And when we inquired why, we found out that it was because of the Southern Poverty Law Center's views of our organization.
2: Well, in fact, those who had selected ADF as their charity received an explanation as to why they could no longer contribute to the group. And it said, among other things, that certain categories of organizations are not eligible to participate in Amazon Smile. And went on to say, we rely on the Southern Poverty Law Center to determine which charities are in certain ineligible categories. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center from my perspective, doesn't have a very good reputation of picking winners and losers in terms of the criterion they're applying here. Can you uh, bring our listeners up to date as to how the SPLC has been using its clout of recent to slander uh, organizations as hate groups, uh, lumping actual hate groups together with those who do legitimate work like ADF and the Family Research Council?
3: Sure. Uh, Southern Poverty Law Center has had this so-called hate list for a while, Uh, But recently it has, over the last decade or two, it has become using it as a tool to oppose its political enemies for lack of uh, for lack of a different term for an organization that they find their views and their advocacy distasteful they put them on the list and use it as a as a, as a means to marginalize that group and to hopefully uh, blunt the effectiveness of that group and so as you look at that list itself what you see is that the Southern Poverty Law Center includes not only organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom and FRC which you mentioned but they also include veterans groups uh, Catholic organizations, uh, Muslims who oppose terrorism, and even uh, groups made up of nuns. So this organization, Southern Poverty Law Center, is not one that organizations like Amazon should be relying upon.
2: By its own admission, the SPLC is in the the game not to inform, but as they put it, to obliterate their uh, their opponents. And these are people with whom they disagree. Uh, and yet um, this is the, just one of the latest examples in which they are wielding a significant amount of influence by lumping together legitimate organizations uh, under the moniker of hate groups and depriving them of opportunities uh, to have influence in the public square.
3: That, that's right, and I think one of the reasons why SPLC has been so effective is that it is an organization that many years ago did great work. Yes. But over the last decades, it has devolved into this uh, left-leaning partisan organization that simply uses slander and the hate title to attack its its um, those whose views it disagrees with.
2: Now, Alliance Defending Freedom CEO uh, Michael Ferris sent a letter urging uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, Amazon's uh, philanthropist, to reconsider its alliance with the SPLC. What is the status of that correspondence and what do you anticipate um, would, will happen?
3: Uh, we, we do not yet have a response to that, but what we're hoping will happen is that uh, Amazon will take a hard look at its blind reliance on the SPLC and maybe, just maybe, it will decide to either no longer rely on the Southern Poverty Law Center or it might d- decide to reevaluate Uh, what who alliance defending freedom is and what it is we do and it might decide to restore us to the amazon smile program at the end of the day though our key focus here is to make sure that the public is educated about the southern poverty law center and that the the public is educated about who amazon has chosen to align itself with
2: so what's uh, what might we expect to happen next um, uh, one would hope that you'd get some kind of response, but what what can we do and what should happen next
3: so we're hopeful for a response from amazon uh, we're waiting for that we haven't heard anything uh, at this point, but I think what what folks can do is um, if this is something they're upset by, they can let Amazon know that you know, what we 've seen so far in the in the you know week or so since this has become public knowledge. Is that there have been many people people who disagree strongly with what we at Alliance Defending Freedom advocate for who have spoken out in support of Alliance Defending Freedom there have been people on the other side of the issues that we engage on who have said listen I disagree with Alliance Defending Freedom on nearly everything they do but I don't think that you should remove them from this program. And this is not the best way to go about accomplishing whatever goals it is you're seeking to obtain.
2: Well, we will continue to follow what happens next. And I would encourage our listeners to communicate with Amazon Smile, just as you have uh, suggested. Uh, Jim Campbell, thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Appreciate it. And the work that you do with uh, Alliance Defending Freedom. Again, Jim Campbell is senior counsel with uh, ADF. As I mentioned, um, Michael Ferris wrote a letter to Amazon Smile, and this is what he wrote. Uh, Dear Moses, that's the individual to whom uh, these uh, this correspondence belongs, we are surprised and disappointed to learn that you have terminated the participation of Alliance Defending Freedom and ADF Foundation in the Amazon Smile program. Even more concerning is your reliance upon the Southern Poverty Law Center to make that determination. ADF is a faith-based organization and the world's largest legal organization advocating for the freedom to peacefully speak live and work according to one's convictions without fear of government punishment. Our organization is well-respected in the legal profession as one of the nation's most successful Supreme Court advocates. We have won seven cases in the last seven years at the High Court. Those victories including defending a state program that provides funding for children to attend private schools and defending a church-run preschool against government discrimination. ADF also works to ensure that our public colleges and universities are true marketplaces of ideas where all students are free to engage in conversation and debate on important issues. As part of that work, we represent people from diverse backgrounds and walks of life, and despite the ever-increasing hostility to free speech on college and university campuses, ADF has achieved nearly 400 victories, securing campus free expression and academic freedom. ADF recently drew the ire of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which he abbreviates here, because of its religious beliefs and advocacy. Although the SPLC did good work many years ago, it has developed into a far-left propaganda machine that slanders organizations with which it disagrees and destroys the possibility of civil discourse in the process. The group has been discredited by investigative journalists and charity watchdogs as a direct mail scam that has seen its leaders amass enormous fortunes. It is no surprise that the United States Department of Defense and the Federal Bureau of Investigation have severed ties with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Once the SPLC identifies an ideological opponent, its goal is to ruin them. As SPLC senior fellow Mark Podock said, sometimes the press will describe us as monitoring hate crimes and so on. I want to say plainly that our aim in life is to destroy those groups, to completely destroy them. That is the group's mindset toward those whose views it doesn't like. Unfortunately, it is uh, aided and abetted by businesses like Amazon that uncritically accept SPLC's slander and use it as a basis for its own business decisions. If you are going to rely on a discredited partisan organization like the SPLC to determine who is eligible to participate in Amazon Smile, you should disclose that in your policy and to your customers. Millions of Americans share our beliefs and thousands of Christian, Jews, and Jewish and Muslim religious organizations subscribe to them as well. Your customers have a right to know that you've placed such an organization as the gatekeeper to participation in a charitable program. We would appreciate the opportunity to meet with Amazon uh, officials to discuss our organization and explain why we should not be excluded from AmazonSmile.com Also, we would gladly help Amazon establish a policy for participation in Amazon Smile that does not ban legitimate, well-respected, faith-based organizations like ADF. Signed, Michael Ferris. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: And hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Israel's strike on Iranian military infrastructure in Syria is a huge story that's being underreported by much of the media. The Israeli Defense Force said it deployed fighter jets and used missiles to strike a range of targets, including military compounds. Intelligence operations and munitions warehouses following the Islamic Republic's unprovoked rocket attack on soldiers in the Golan Heights. The IDF will not allow the Iranian threat to establish itself in Syria. The Syrian regime will be held accountable for everything happening in its territory, a press release read. The IDF is prepared for a wide variety of scenarios. Well, the strikes were Israel's largest air operation in Syria since 1973, the time of the war. We're talking about dozens of Israeli strikes on Iran military facilities inside Syria. Uh, This is probably going to escalate. It's probably going to go into Lebanon. It is being predicted by those who have uh, enough background to know uh, this is the result of u.s inaction in the past eight years on iran and russia's growing influence in syria so we bear some responsibility for the escalation the white house on thursday condemned the iranian assault two days after the president announced he was pulling the u.s out of the iran nuclear deal well the united states condemns the iranian regime's provocative rocket attack from syria against israeli citizens and we strongly support israel's right to act in its self-defense that's a quote from press secretary sarah sanders in a statement She went on to say the Iranian regime's deployment into Syria of offensive rocket and missile systems aimed at Israel is an unacceptable and highly dangerous development for the entire Middle East. And make no mistake, this is uh, an issue that that um, uh, does, in fact, impact the entire Middle East. It's uh, the only thing that would have brought an alliance of Middle Eastern countries along with Israel to try to prevent um, Iran from becoming a nuclear power. And by the way, there was no country in the Middle East where they have much more at stake than anyone in Europe or the United States opposed the Iran nuclear deal. Anyway, Israel and Iran reached the brink of full-scale war Thursday as the Islamic Republic's unprovoked rocket attack on soldiers in that area gave way to an unprecedented counterattack. The strikes came in response to Syria-based Iranian forces firing roughly 20 rockets at Israeli frontline military positions in the Golan Heights. Uh, The White House um, condemned the action. Israel's rockets shook Damascus. The uh, Britain-based Syrian observatory for human rights said the Israeli strikes killed 23 fighters, including five Syrian soldiers. Syria's military, however, said early Thursday the Israeli strikes killed three people, wounded two and destroyed a radar station, uh, saying far less damage was done. But Israel's takedown of Iranian targets in Syria provokes, uh, or rather proves, uh, military uh, the Israeli military compared to Tehran's packs a very powerful punch. And we hope that predictions that this will escalate uh, will not be the case, but that certainly seems to be a strong possibility. Meanwhile, the United States is moving its embassy to Israel, uh, uh, in Israel rather, to Jerusalem next week in defiance of the Palestinians and most of the world, likely further heightening tensions at a time of tumult in the region. In fact, we're going to talk uh, at some length with uh, Pastor Rich Jones about uh, that move and its... Uh, not only political and geopolitical implications, but certainly from a biblical standpoint as well. President Trump is set to make good on his pledge in December when he broke with decades of precedent and recognized the disputed city of Israel's capital to global outcry. The embassy inauguration due to take place Monday caps his decision, but comes at a particularly fever time after weeks of protests and clashes along the Gaza Strip's border with Israel. It also follows Trump's announcement on Tuesday that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, creating a new level of uncertainty Certainty in the turbulent Middle East and Israel, Israeli strikes on dozens of Iranian targets in Syria. Keep in mind, there was no country in the Middle East that supported the Iran nuclear deal. Well, the deadly airstrikes uh, followed. Uh Uh, rocket fire toward Israeli forces uh, in the occupied uh, Golan Heights that Israel blamed on Iran. The ceremony on Monday will include about 800 guests and a White House delegation, though not the president himself, at what until now has been a U.S. consulate building in Jerusalem. The Secretary of State, John Sullivan, will lead the delegation that will, I should say the U.S. Deputy Secretary of of State will lead the delegation that will include uh, Ivanka Trump, her husband and senior White House aide Jared Kushner, and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. Uh, Less than 100 kilometers away, more protests are planned along the Gaza border, with some Palestinians vowing to rush the fence to try to break through, despite Israeli uh, snipers deployed on the other side. The Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has sought to portray the historic U.S. embassy move as encouraging other countries to do the same, though this is not uh, played out on a significant level. I must tell you that the bold decision by President Trump has prompted other countries, quite a few now, who are planning to move their embassy to Jerusalem as well, Netanyahu told U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo when he visited Tel Aviv last month. Senior Palestinian official Nabil Shah told journalists on Wednesday that Trump is supporting Israeli cleansing of our people from Jerusalem and is giving Israel a chance to violate all the international law that uh, guarded this situation. Well, differences of opinion on how to interpret this event, but I will point out that May 14th marks the 70th anniversary of the founding of Israel. The following day is when the Palestinians mark the Nakba, or uh, catastrophe, commemorating the more than 700,000 Palestinians who fled or were expelled from their homes in the 1948 war surrounding Israel's creation. Palestinian protests are planned on both days. Uh, Again, we're looking forward to a conversation uh, with Pastor Rich Jones on Tuesday following that event, uh, trying to put this into perspective. Well, a jubilant President uh, Donald Trump announced uh, today on Twitter that five of the most wanted leaders of ISIS have been captured after they were lured from uh, from Syria to Iraq with fake telegraph messages. A security advisor to Iraq's government used the phone to, of uh, captured ISIS Lieutenant Ismail um, al-Atwaii to send the message via the app and snare the other four leaders. The encrypted app was officially named by ISIS as one of its favored mobile messaging services in 2015 and has been regularly used by the terror group for private communication and to spread propaganda. Uh, The individual who had been captured and whose uh, phone was used was also uh, uses the... alias Abu Zayed al-Iraqi, was captured in February in Turkey by Turkish authorities and handed over to Iraqi agents, security advisors uh, say. Hashimi, the security advisor, described this individual as a direct aid to ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, responsible for fund transfers to the group's bank accounts in different countries. Well, the president rejoiced Thursday over a report that Iraqi agents have captured a group of high-ranking ISIS leaders. Iraqi state television broadcast images of four of the men arrested in the operation. Uh, Trump uh, tweeted about the, the uh, capture, which included two of the highest-ranking ISIS commanders ever to be taken alive. The ISIS terror army created in 2012 was the most aggressive and effective rebel force in Syria before the U.S. and other Western nations started pushing back with vigor. Iraqi agents used the telegram messaging app um, and the mobile phone of the individual they had already captured to lure other Islamic State commanders to cross the border from Syria into Iraq where they were captured. Those held include Saddam Jamal, a Syrian who served as the group's governor of Syria's eastern Euphrates region, and others. Well, a large explosion in Hawaii's volcano on Wednesday may mark the beginning of more violent explosive eruptions that could spray rocks for miles or kilometers and dust nearby towns in volcanic ash and smog, the U.S. Geological Survey say. And unlike the volcano here, it's not just ash that is uh, spewed into the air, but rather glass. And so it's much more dangerous in terms of. Uh, one's lungs. Uh, Hawaii's most active volcano erupted on Thursday, and a powerful earthquake shook the crater the next day. Lava flows from fissures on its flank have destroyed at least 36 homes and other buildings and caused the evacuation of some 2,000 residents, and the numbers are growing. The USGS uh, GS is warning that more violent eruptions at the crater could begin mid-May, shooting rocks weighing several tons for over half a mile hurling pebble-sized projectiles several miles and dusting areas up to uh, 20 miles away with ash, that is uh, shards of glass. We'll continue to follow what's happening there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Joyce Newmeyer. She's the president of Adventist Health Pacific Northwest Region. Portland Adventist has entered into a collaboration with OHSU. We'll explain what that means and how we're all going to benefit as a community. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Well, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Adventist Health Portland ranks in the top 5% nationwide for quality care, and they're in the midst of a transformative change bringing greater health care value to Oregonians through a clinical integration with Oregon Health and Science University. They recently established a significant partnership with OHSU to integrate their clinical activities and services here in the Portland metro area. They're combining Adventist Healthcare Enterprise in Portland with OHSU's stature as the only academic health center in Portland with an exceptional reputation for for Innovation and Clinical Advancement. Well, here to tell us more about that and how we as the community are going to benefit is Joyce Newmeyer. She's president of Adventist Health Pacific Northwest Region. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome and congratulations.
4: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that so much, and I'm happy to be with you this afternoon.
2: Well, let's step, step back just a little bit. When did this collaboration begin? The collaboration was effective January 1 of this year, Now, it's interesting because I think most of us might not fully appreciate what this collaboration means in terms of the kind of quality care that this represents. We're familiar with Adventist Health and the quality of care, as I mentioned, in the top 5% nationwide. We're familiar with the teaching hospital, OHSU, but bringing the two together is really something quite significant and unique. Help us to better understand what this collaboration looks like.
4: Oh, it is a very special partnership and and we're so grateful to be a part of it. Uh, it's, it means that we can take everything from a rural health clinic and a community-based doctor's office and community care and home health care and combine that with the very best of academic medicine and the tertiary uh, care, the the very uh, serious care that, that OHSU provides to the most seriously ill patients. We can put that in a network that can seamlessly provide care to the entire community uh, along all spectrum of health care.
2: Now, my understanding is this collaboration is focused on improving access to care, creating better health care outcomes, controlling medical costs. How does a collaboration like this come about? Does one party approach the other? How does this uh, happen?
4: You know, it comes uh, through building relationships. Isn't that the best way that just about everything happens? Absolutely. Um, You form relationships with people and you get to know them and you, you build trusting relationships where you know that we all want the same good things for our community. And then you start exploring through conversation, how can we do this
2: together in a way that benefits the community? And beautiful things happen from there. Now, each of you, Adventist Health and OHSU, you have some pretty significant strengths. How will the strengths of each organization uh, uh impact uh, that affiliation build on one another to pr- to provide something that's rather unique in our area well, we can provide at Adventist Health
4: um, an extension of the network of care through our locations all along the east side of the river. And OHSU can, in a more seamless way, then provide the advanced specialty care that community hospitals need to access from time to time. It breaks down barriers. It breaks down delays. Um, it, it provides ways for us to work together in ways that are so seamless that patients might, it might be transparent to them. hmm
2: Mm-hmm. I know for those of us who have taken advantage of Adventist health care, we appreciate what you do because of your core mission, your vision and your core values. Will that remain the same or will we expect changes moving forward? No, we are. Our, our reason for
4: existing is to live God's love by inspiring health, wholeness and hope. And we don't want that to change OHSU doesn't want that to change for us either. They respect our mission, our values, and our commitment um, to the care that we've provided here for well over a 100 years. Um, they very clearly said, how can we enhance what you're doing, not change it or take away from it? Oh,
2: That's a refreshing approach, each regarding the uh, the central focus of the other as worth preserving.
4: Absolutely. And we respect the mission of of OHSU as well to improve the health and well-being of all Oregonians. We feel that while our missions
2: are distinct and different, they're very complementary and fully aligned. And healthcare is at the core of it all. And nobody does it better than OHSU and Adventist Health. So let's just say that. Now, this was rolled out in... uh, You're certainly welcome. This was rolled out in January. And for some of your patients, they've already experienced and know the answers to some of these questions. But in practical terms, what kinds of uh, differences can your patients expect? For example, can they keep their, their, uh, their own doctors or will there be some changes in that way? Oh, no, they
4: can keep their own doctors, certainly. We have received, um, it's its now over 260 or so patients through the transfer center at OHSU. Patients who there was no room for at OHSU. They run at capacity, and um, the transfer center said there's plenty of, Adventist Health can handle this, and there's plenty of room there for them to be able to go there. So we've been receiving patients from all over the state uh, who, who need help from a higher level
2: facility and we can provide that right here at Adventist Health. Oh, that's amazing. Well, OHSU is the only academic health center in the state of Oregon. It's nationally distinguished as a research university. They're dedicated solely to advancing health sciences and this collaboration is really a significant complement to Adventist Health. When you consider all the options that were available uh, to, uh, to seek Adventist Health out for that kind of collaboration, says an awful lot about the quality of care that you all have been providing as a faith-based, not-for-profit healthcare network.
4: We're very, very proud to be a part of the OHSU Network of Care and to to represent the flame, uh, their logo, and their brand. Um, as well as maintaining our identity as, as Adventist Health and the services that we've provided for so very long. But what a privilege it is to work with others who care about this community just as we do.
2: So my understanding is you're going to remain independently owned organizations, uh, but you will collaborate in some si- significant ways that will serve the community very well
4: that's true um we both own our own organizations we employ our own employees and we're responsible to our own missions but there are so many things that we Uh, that we need to do together, joint goals that we work fully in collaboration to achieve.
2: Now Adventist Health Portland has been serving this community for the past 125 years, uh, have done it very, very well. Will we expect to see some uh, difference in signage, your logo, or will there be those kinds of changes that, that indicate this collaboration?
4: Oh, you will see changes. Um, some of the folks who drive around here on our campus are already seeing changes. We will be representing uh, the logo, the brand of OHSU, the flame, that represents um, their education and their clinical um, and their research missions. Uh, we, and that will also be accompanied by the name Adventist Health Portland, uh, which reflects our history and our heritage and uh, who our owner is.
2: Well, let me just say on behalf of patients across the Portland metro area and those of us who have appreciated the work of Adventist Health Portland, congratulations for this collaboration. It's a significant uh, compliment and it will be a, a tremendous blessing to our community as these two organizations work together in uh, continuing to serve us very well. Thank you so much for all you, the staff and uh, and folks at Adventist Health do uh, to help keep us well. And um, and uh, and healthy. Thank you so much. Thank
4: you. It's a privilege to serve this community, and it's been a privilege to talk with you this afternoon.
2: Thank you so much. God bless. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Joyce Newmeyer. she is the president of Adventist Health Pacific Northwest Region, and uh, Portland Adventist has entered into a partnership, maybe collaboration is the better way to describe it, with Oregon Health Sciences University, or OHSU, which is an advanced treatment uh, Research University, and uh, this is a significant collaboration. So you can expect, as she indicated a moment ago, to see some uh, updates uh, in their signage, so uh, reflecting that um, collaboration. And it's a it's a real blessing to the community, and certainly uh, says a lot about the work of Adventist health here in the Pacific Northwest. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to share a conversation I had with Dr. Ryan Anderson, his latest book, When Harry Became Sally. It's a book that uh, talks about this transgender moment and how we should think about it in terms of science and truth and psychology and all the the areas that touch on this issue so that we can um, be relevant, truthful, and know how to uh, communicate on the subject. Ryan Anderson, up next.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, America is in the midst of what's being called a transgender moment. It wasn't that long ago when most Americans hadn't even heard of transgender identity. But within the space of a year, it's become a cause celebre, claiming the mantle of civil rights. But can a boy truly be trapped in a girl's body? And can modern medicine really reassign sex? Is sex something assigned in the first place? And what's the loving response to a friend or a child experiencing a gender identity conflict? What should our laws say? on these very important issues. When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment is the new book by Ryan Anderson, and it provides thoughtful answers to all of these questions and others. He draws on the best insights from biology, psychology, and philosophy, and he offers a balanced approach to the policy issues, a nuanced vision of human embodiment, and a sober and honest survey of the human costs of getting human nature wrong. He reveals a grim contrast between the media's sunny depiction and the often sad reaction Realities of gender identity struggles, and he introduces readers to people who tried to transition but found themselves no better off. Especially troubling is the suffering felt by adults who were encouraged to transition as children but later came to regret it. Well, Ryan Anderson is the William E. Simon Sr. Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He is the author of Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom, and co-author of What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense and Debating... Uh, a defense, rather, and Debating Religious Liberty... And discrimination. He's made appearances on all the major uh, television and network. Um, uh, stations. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. And his research has been cited by two U.S. Supreme Court justices in two separate Supreme Court cases. He received his bachelor's degree from Princeton University, his doctoral degree from the University of Notre Dame. And he joins us to talk about his latest book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. Ryan Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be with you. This is such a, an important and timely book because there are lots of questions about what can and can't be done, what should and shouldn't be done, and where we stand as a culture today in which we are all encouraged to embrace the notion of uh, transgender as a, a, a perfectly acceptable uh, option for people with gender confusion, which used to be gender dysphoria. What motivated you to, to take on this topic at this time?
5: Well, I mean, so it's twofold. Uh, one was that we just kept getting requests at the Heritage Foundation, which is where I work, um, about the policy issues on this. You know, what should a school do when it comes to bathrooms, locker rooms, sports teams? Uh, what should be the military policy? What should be healthcare policy? And as I started looking into these policy questions, I saw that the underlying human realities are actually much more important. Uh, and it was when I started seeing some uh, YouTube videos of people who had transitioned and then five or 10 or 15 years de-transitioned. Uh, and they spoke movingly about the suffering that they had um, through that process. But that's really what convinced me that I had to take the time to do the deep dive, the research on what's true and what's not true when it comes to these difficult questions about gender identity, gender confusion, a uh, transgender identity. Uh, and then write a book that would be accessible to ordinary people.
2: Mm-hmm. Because there are lots of legitimate questions and confusion on this subject. Well, let's begin with the more obvious question, and that is whether or not a boy or a girl, for that matter, can be trapped in the opposite sex's body. Can a boy be trapped in a girl's body? And what does that mean? Yeah. So so, so a great follow up question. I mean, The short answer is no, um, you can't be trapped in the
5: wrong body um, because the sex of an individual is a bodily reality. Um, so it's not even clear what it would mean to be trapped in the wrong body. Who is trapped in the wrong body? We are our bodies. That is part of the reality of who we are. Uh, and so there's not something um, that exists independent of the body that could be trapped in the, quote, wrong body. But what can happen is people can feel uncomfortable in their bodies. Right. So people can have an alienation from their body. And then what good therapy looks like is it tries to help people feel comfortable in their own bodies. It tries to um, help people feel comfortable in their own skin.
2: What I'm reading and what I'm hearing said is that uh, sex and gender are two very different things. They acknowledge the biology, that one is male or female, according to one's genitalia, but that gender is something much broader. It has more to do with society. And so while we may reject our biological sex, we can choose our gender, which has a, a very broad range. What are your thoughts o- about that kind of an explanation that acknowledges the, the bio- biological sex but rejects, uh, the fact that it means anything to how one chooses to present? Well, I mean, if, if that's the case, uh, and I think a certain version of that probably is the case, then why do you have to
5: radically transform someone's body? Uh, it's perfectly fine to say that my biology is a man, but I enjoy playing with dolls or I enjoy ballet or I enjoy any of the socially um, constructed, stereotypically feminine activities. That's perfectly fine. It doesn't mean that you're a girl trapped in a boy's body. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we should give you puberty-blocking drugs. It doesn't mean we should give you estrogen. It doesn't mean we should give you surgery. Um, what this means is that we need to have a um, larger understanding of what are acceptable interests and, um, and activities for boys and girls, men and women. And boys who play with dolls and girls who play with trucks aren't trapped in the wrong bodies, uh, that they're not transgender, Uh, we just need to have a, a, a larger understanding of the reality that boys and girls can be different, but they're still boys and they're still girls.
2: Another large question is whether or not modern medicine can reassign sex. We're hearing more and more of sex reassignment surgery at younger and younger ages. And we'll, we'll talk maybe in a moment about the use of hormones uh, in, in children and what we know and what we don't know about the long-term impact. But what about the, the notion that changing one's physical appearance can essentially reassign one's sex?
5: Well, no. Uh, sex change, um, it's impossible Uh, precisely because sex isn't assigned at birth, uh, contrary to what the activists say. You'll you'll hear activists now say that someone's sex is merely assigned at birth. Um, And they're saying that because then they can say, and modern medicine can, quote, reassign sex. Uh, But they're wrong about both of those things. Sex isn't assigned at birth. Sex is a bodily reality um, that starts forming at conception uh, based upon the chromosomes that we inherit from our mother and our father, uh, that then leads in utero to the formation of certain sex organs, the production of certain sex hormones, the development of certain sexual reproductive systems, the development of certain external genitalia. All of these things are taking place well before birth. And so sex isn't assigned at birth. It's recognized on an ultrasound screen around 20 weeks. So later in life, you can't undo all that. Um, You can't change the chromosomal uh, uh, inheritance of an individual. You can't give them a new reproductive system. What you can do, however, is you can amputate certain body parts. You can remove certain body parts. And then you can try to surgically create something that resembles uh, the opposite sex's uh, body parts. You can masculinize a woman's body and you can feminize a man's body, but that doesn't reassign their sex.
2: Now, in addition to surgical modifications, it's also possible to take hormones that assist in that um, apparent uh, change. And we're hearing increasingly that young children who have sex um, confusion are being prescribed hormones. What do we know about the impact that that can and will have in the lives of young people who take these kinds of drugs over long periods of time?
5: Yeah, this is, this is really, really troubling. Um, Very. And there's a, there's a chapter in the book that's just devoted to gender dysphoria in children and what the activists are proposing and then what historically uh, was good medicine. And so let me start with what the activists are proposing. Uh, they're saying that a child as young as three years old who identifies as the opposite sex could first undergo a social transition, a new name, a new wardrobe, a new pronoun. Then as that child approaches puberty, the child should be placed on puberty-blocking drugs to prevent the child from going through puberty in the, quote, wrong body. Then at age 14, 15, and 16, the child should be given the opposite sexes, sex hormones, to try to mimic the puberty of the opposite sex. So you would give testosterone to a high school girl, estrogen to a high school boy, to try to masculinize or feminize. Their bodies. And then at age 18, that's when um, the reassignment surgery can take place. Your question was what do we know? Um, We don't know very much. There's not a single long term study on the long term consequences of indefinitely blocking puberty in a child. They're conducting an experiment on children, Mm -hmm. telling their parents that this is all well understood and that there's a consensus and that this will um, save your child. Uh, They have no idea what it means for a human being not to go through all the coordinated developmental changes that take place at puberty. What does that mean 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, simply as a physical matter? Uh, Then there's also serious concerns that the social transition, the puberty blockers, the opposite sexes, sex hormones, that that could actually be reinforcing um, the transgender identity. Uh, rather than helping someone grow out of it, you might actually be reinforcing it.
2: We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Ryan Anderson. Dr. Anderson is the author of When Harry Became Sally Responding to the Transgender Moment. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing our conversation with uh, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. And in the book, he draws on the best insights from biology, psychology and philosophy and offers some balanced approach to the policy issues, the nuanced vision of human embodiment and a sober and honest survey of the human cost of getting human nature wrong, which we certainly are on the verge of. Doing, you mentioned uh, earlier, and I think this applies to to children uh, as well. But you have a chapter titled "Detransitioners uh, Who Tell Their Story." This is not something you hear much out on the public square. It's not in the popular media that there are people who regret having made decisions to mutilate their bodies and take drugs for long periods of time. What do they tell us about the impact that this kind of physical, um, mental? Uh, Transition has on them, and uh, what ultimately leads to some deciding this was not in their best interest.
5: Yeah, the, the, these stories are heartbreaking um, because these are individuals who were told by the gender experts, by the counselors uh, at the gender clinics, by the uh, doctors, by the psychiatrists, that they were actually trapped in the wrong body and that they would find happiness and wholeness by transitioning. Um, and that's not what happened. Uh, so many of them report that they were much too young to make these decisions. They don't think uh, that they were mature enough to making life-altering decisions. Many of them report that the um, medical professionals, the mental health professionals, never really discussed with them um, the possible causes for their gender dysphoria. You were know, there underlying causes um depression, abuse, anxiety, uh, various experiences, bullying, family trauma? anything like that that might have been causing this. Um, the therapists didn't discuss that, and they didn't ever mention alternative therapies. Um, they report that the experts were telling that this was their only option. And then 5, 10, 15 years later, uh, they're no happier than they were before they transitioned. In fact, they have all of the same struggles plus more, and that's what then leads them to de-transition. Uh, and many of them now regret um, the permanent damage they've done to their bodies, um, their lost fertility, um, their five o'clock shadow. These are women who now have five o'clock shadow, women who uh, no longer have breasts because they had a double mastectomy, uh, women who are infertile uh, because of the years of testosterone that they took or because they had a hysterectomy. Um, we want to do whatever we can to prevent more people um, from suffering in this way. Uh, we want to do whatever we can Uh, to help people find the help that they need to feel comfortable in their own bodies. Uh, People with gender dysphoria, they're not faking it. Mm -hmm. Imagine feeling so uncomfortable in your own body that you would contemplate uh, transitioning, taking uh, testosterone, having a mastectomy, having a hysterectomy. Uh, These people are clearly uncomfortable in their own bodies. And we need to work harder uh, at helping them find the help that they need so they can feel comfortable being who they are in their own skin.
2: I want to remind our listeners that it's been several weeks ago now, but we interviewed the uh, 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 Pure Passion that produ- produced the uh, video, Transformed, and that's a, a, an opportunity to hear from people who have experienced precisely what you are describing, and they may want to uh, to check that out. Now, you have a chapter titled, What Makes Us Man uh, and Woman? And for those of us who do not struggle in this area, it may seem like an obvious question with an obvious answer, but why do you ask the question and how should we think about it in view of uh, the, the subject of transgender and this moment?
5: Sure, because what's important here is to recognize that what makes us a man or a woman are bodily realities, not identities about how we feel. Uh, and if you notice, so many of the gender identity claims are largely based on stereotypes, Mm-hmm. Um, so that if you're a little boy who enjoys Barbie and the color pink and you don't enjoy football and you're not kind of a bully, then that means you're a girl attracted in a boy body. Um, you look at how these things are frequently discussed. Um, once you get away from objective bodily biological reality, all people have left are various stereotypes, uh, which is why it's not surprising to many people that when Bruce Jenner um, announced that he was now Caitlyn Jenner, that cover photo in Vanity Fair was a very stereotypical image of what a cover model is supposed to look like. But being a woman is more than just cleavage and lipstick and nail polish and high heels and all of those kind of external uh, realities. And so what makes us a man and a woman is going to start with our chromosomes It's going to continue with the hormones that our body produces, and they produce those hormones because we have certain internal reproductive organs. We have certain external genitalia. We have certain secondary sex characteristics. These are all bodily realities, and they don't necessarily say anything about how a boy or a man ought to behave or how a girl or a woman ought to behave. There's a certain truth to the fact that gender is constructed, but it's not merely a social construct.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I was reading an article earlier today, and the headline said something like, don't call me baby, call me they be. And the idea was to reserve uh, labeling a child, male or female, boy or girl, choosing a gender at some future point. And so they be would be would replace baby. Is that where we're headed, in which we simply jettison the notion of male and female in favor of uh, allowing Harry and Sally to choose at some point later in life what they uh, what they ultimately want to become?
5: that's That's what some people want us to do, and we have to avoid that mistake uh, because there are two different mistakes we can make. we can you know overemphasize in one or the other direction and the one direction is androgyny right that's the baby where you simply deny that there are boys and girls men and women, and then you deny that there are differences between boys and girls and men and women, uh, so you embrace the androgyny but the other mistake um, and you know some communities in the United States make this mistake is that they Overemphasize the differences. They have rigid um, sex stereotypes. Uh, Frequently, they have this in a hierarchical relationship so that boys are better than girls, smarter than girls, men are better than women. Um, We want to avoid both of those mistakes. Uh, We don't want to exaggerate the differences between men and women. We don't want to deny that there are differences between men and women. What we want to do is we want to say men and women are equal in their dignity, but they're not the same. And many people mistake this either denying the equal and dignity part or pretending that they are the same. Uh, We need to get this right.
2: Well, let me ask you about um, public policy, because I think a lot of people feel very pressed about the idea that they're being uh, pressed into a particular view on the subject without the luxury of having the freedom to talk about what direction we ought to go. We know in California, for example, it's quite possible in the near future any discussion like this and suggesting that someone who has a gender confusion uh, should uh, have any place to go to talk about it should be permitted to do so.
5: Yeah, this is this is this
2: California
5: proposed bill is really outrageous. It would make it a um, uh, 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 consumer fraud, it's part of their consumer fraud statute uh, for any professional. To help a boy who feels uncomfortable being a boy identify as a boy, to help a woman who doesn't feel comfortable being a woman, to help her feel comfortable, this would be unlawful. Um, This is an overreach of government regulation, but it's simply outrageous that we would say it's legal for a doctor to give a teenage boy puberty-blocking drugs and estrogen And then one day surgery to transform that boy into a girl. But it's not legal for that doctor to simply talk with the boy to discover what it is about being a boy that he finds uncomfortable, what it is about being a girl that he finds attractive, and to help him reunite with his body to see that he can be comfortable being a boy, that he need not have the anxiety that he has, that whatever expectation he thinks is being placed upon him as a boy that he can't live up to. He can meet or he can get rid of the expectation that he doesn't have to transform his body to be happy. Um, people need to be free to seek out that sort of help and professionals need to be free to deliver that sort of help.
2: Now I need to take a break and I'm putting you on the spot. When I come back from the break, do you have another couple of minutes? Cause I want to ask you uh, how we can lovingly respond to a friend or a child experiencing uh, this conflict. Sure. Yep. Okay. We'll take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, we're talking with uh, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson, his latest book, When Harry Became Sally, responding to the transgender moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson. His latest book is When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. I appreciate your uh, agreeing to stay with us for a few more minutes, because I did want to ask you how, in the context of a very volatile conversation, or the absence of conversation on this subject, what is the loving response uh, to a a friend or a child experiencing a gender identity conflict? Sure,
5: this is so important. It's First is it's to stay in long-term relationship with this individual. Uh, this person needs to know that you love them, that you care for them, that you're not rejecting them. Um, but it's also to help them know um, that trying to live as if the opposite sex isn't going to bring them the wholeness and the happiness that they're looking for, um, and that instead what they should be doing is trying to uh, receive assistance in identifying what the underlying cause of their discomfort is and then steps they can take to rectify that. Um, and so let me let me just give you one example, since I know we're short on time. Um, it's an example that comes from um, Chapter 6 in, in my book, and uh, it's from the clinical literature, and it involves a young boy uh, who was identifying as a girl. His parents, um, responding in a loving and compassionate way, took him to see a therapist, And the therapist just started asking him questions. You know, what is it about being a boy that you find uncomfortable? What is it about being a boy that causes you distress? What is it about being a girl that you find attractive, that you find appealing? And the boy revealed to the therapist that the anxiety, the distress was because he was being bullied by the other boys in school. He was being picked on. They were calling him a sissy and a wuss. Um, To cope with that bullying, he had formed closer friendships with the girls in his class. His interests were now stereotypically feminine, and so he now thought that he must actually be a girl trapped in a boy's body. So the therapist told the parents to do three things to help their son. First, remove your son from this terrible, toxic environment where he's being bullied. The bullying is one of the underlying causes of the gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second, keep bringing him to me so that we can have these conversations, because we need to talk to the son so we can know that boys can be sensitive. Boys can be sweet. Boys don't have to be jerks. That right now, he has a very narrow understanding of what it means to be a boy. And because he doesn't fit into that narrow understanding, he thinks he's not a boy. And so we have to enlarge his understanding. We have to mature his understanding. And then the third thing they recommended was it's not just enough to talk to him about these things. He needs to experience them. So they, uh, the therapist recommended that they find their son a peer group of boys like him. Help him make friends with boys who have his interests, his disposition, his temperament, so he can see firsthand that he's a real boy, that there are other boys out there just like him. Mm -hmm. When the family did this, um, less than a year later, their son was identifying as a boy again. He was spared the puberty-blocking drugs, the estrogen, potentially surgery. Uh, He was able to get the assistance he needed to feel comfortable being a boy. And that's the outcome that we're going to want to see happen uh, whenever possible.
2: I know one of the concerns of some of the new school policies is how they might affect children who are being or will be indoctrinated into believing that they really are trapped in the wrong body. And if there is a culture uh, developed around this, this notion where it's not only accepted, but in some ways could be understood as encouraged, what impact that's going to have on young people as well.
5: That's a very valid concern because what we know is that um, all of us, um, adults and children, we interpret our own thoughts and our feelings and our experiences according to certain um, background assumptions, background beliefs. Um, And if your background assumption is that sex is merely assigned at birth and that modern medicine can reassign sex, then if you go through a stage where you feel uncomfortable in your body, you might interpret that discomfort as a sign that you're actually the opposite sex, that you're trapped in the wrong body. Rather than making sense of your feelings as, I feel uncomfortable in my body, I should seek out help to feel comfortable again, you might make sense of it as, I'm actually a girl trapped in a boy's body, and I should seek out uh, transition help. So these background assumptions, these core beliefs, they really impact how all of us make sense of our own lives, our own experiences. And this is particularly true for school children.
2: I sometimes am very concerned about uh, people who transition and they're celebrated for having done so. If there is at some point in the future, any regret, there may be a reluctance to admit it because so much attention and fawning is, is um, is given to those who are celebrated for having made that decision. I, I, I wonder if uh, if there are more people who would have preferred not to have taken that transition, but are now loath to admit it. In the book, you you show how the law is being used to coerce and penalize those who believe the truth about human nature, and how Americans can start to push back with uh, with principle and prudence, with compassion and grace. That's the challenge in this very volatile environment. Can you give us a a brief insight? Sure. I mean, let let me give you just one example. Um, Take
5: the the, the high school uh, bathroom debate. I can understand why a boy who identifies as a girl doesn't want to be forced into the boy's bathroom and locker room. He's going to feel uncomfortable being forced into the boy's bathroom and locker room if he no longer identifies as a boy. But can he and the LGBT activists understand why the girls at this school will feel uncomfortable if he's allowed in the girls' bathroom and locker room. Um, so the answer here is not to either force him into the boys' bathroom or allow him into the girls' facility. It's to create an accommodation. And we do this frequently in American law, where the law requires a reasonable accommodation. And so one school in Virginia, they created three different single occupancy uh, restrooms, one on each floor of the high school, so that they, they had a student who was transitioning, so that that student and any other student who desired additional privacy would have a single occupancy facility on each floor of the school. And the parents sued anyway, and the LGBT activists used this, and it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And before the Supreme Court could rule on the case, the Trump administration rescinded the Obama bathroom policy because it was the Obama bathroom mandate that was the law that the family or it was the was the guidance it wasn't even a law it was merely guidance that the family that was suing the school district was using to say the school district was violating their transgender child's rights um, we don't need to be extremists like this mm-hmm. um, you shouldn't be suing your local school districts to allow you into the girl's bathroom and locker room when you're biologically a boy, um, but we should try to accommodate you if we can. And what this school in Virginia did was eminently reasonable by creating three single occupancy facilities for anyone who desires that additional privacy
2: yeah, it seems altogether reasonable. Well, I think one of the places to start is by reading When Harry Became Sally, responding to the transgender moment so that we're better informed on the issue and we can talk intelligently about it. And I so appreciate uh, the work that you have done in making this available. And I would highly recommend to our listeners today that you pick up a copy, you read it and you pass it on because we do need to be well-versed on the subject and have a clear understanding and know how to move forward with uh, with compassion and, uh, and some knowledge on uh, what what, what the right thing to do might be. Ryan Anderson, thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Again, uh, Dr. Anderson is the author of When Harry Became Sally, responding to the transgender moment. The Bush is, book rather, is published by Encounter and is currently available in um, in bookstores. Very well done and gives you a very clear understanding of the uh, the contours of the issue and some of the answers to difficult questions. And there are reasonable answers uh, to help those who struggle with uh, gender dysphoria. I I also think about in the state of California, where a conversation like this, where a book like this will not be allowed if the law succeeds. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today being Thursday, Friday means that we're going to lighten up. And so we're looking forward to doing just that. There's always the possibility that they will be breaking news, in which case we will break in. So you can tune in expecting to hear what's happening in the world. By the way, portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. It seems the Boy Scouts of America would prefer, as uh, Daniel Davis in a recent Daily Signal column put it, prefer not to exist. On Wednesday of last week, the Boy Scouts announced their signature program known simply as the Boy Scouts, which serves about um, 10 to 17 year olds, will no longer bear the word boy. Beginning in February, it will be known as Scouts of BSA. I'm not sure what that stands for, Scouts BSA, because B used to stand for boys. Anyway, this change comes only a month after, or rather months, after the Boy Scouts announced girls would be allowed into the program. Chief Executive Officer uh, uh, Mike Serbaugh said he they wanted to choose a name that evokes the past, but also conveys the inclusive nature of the program going forward. Well, this name change and the inclusive policy change that preceded it indicates a fundamental a fundamental shift away from the mindset that first gave rise to the Boy Scouts in the early 20th century. One can't shake the impression that if the Boy Scouts were starting from scratch, they'd ditch even the acronym BSA and go completely gender neutral. Well, it's worth probing that fundamental shift in mindset. Again, quoting from David, rather Daniel Davis, the very existence of Boy Scouts as separate from Girl Scouts, which still exists, suggests a belief that boys and girls are fundamentally different. Imagine that, and that some good could be achieved by separating them for certain purposes. Otherwise, we would have simply had the Scouts. Well, the Boy Scouts emerged out of a culture that valued boyhood and girlhood as distinct realities. Rooted in maleness and femaleness, each gender had its own unique set of virtues that our culture sought to cultivate in the next generation and value. Well, those virtues are captured in the Boy Scouts' 1916 congressional charter, which read... The purpose of this uh, corporation shall be to promote, through organization and cooperation with other agencies, the ability of boys to do things for themselves and others, to train them in scout craft, and to teach them patriotism, courage, self-reliance, and kindred virtues, using the methods which are, uh, are now in common use by Boy Scouts. Courage. Self-reliance, virtues accessible to all, no doubt, yet which we considered integral to the masculine ideal. The Girl Scouts came into being just two years after the Boy Scouts. Their motto was even more explicitly tailored to a single gender, to train girls first as good women, then as good citizens, wives and mothers. If the founder of these organizations believed men and women are essentially the same and that the same ends could be achieved by mixing Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts together, then again... Uh, we would simply have inherited the Scouts of America title. But instead, two years after the Boy Scouts were founded, Juliet. Jordan Lowe founded the organization that became the Girl Scouts. It, too, has evolved over time, but not to include boys. Though she took inspiration from Sir Robert Baden Powell, who founded the Boy Scouts, she wanted to start a different organization. So the legacy we have is two separate institutions premised on the idea that masculine and feminine identities actually matter, that they are unique, special, each worthy of celebration in their own right and worth cultivating in the next generation. Yet today, the Boy Scouts organization is perpetually at war with itself, at war with the very premise of its own existence. The Boy Scouts rightly recognize that male and female are inherently equal, but equality doesn't mean the same. The Boy Scouts seem to have conflated the two. If boys and girls are essentially the same, what's to be gained from keeping them separate? That would be arbitrary and perhaps even wrong. But if boys and girls are, in fact, different and generally oriented toward their own unique masculine and feminine virtues, then it makes perfect sense to nurture them in separate settings, at least for discrete activities like scouting. Yet the Boy Scouts have jettisoned the thinking in favor of radical inclusion. They've made achieve, they have uh, they may have rather achieved greater inclusivity, but at what cost? Their very definition is exclusive just so just as so many other groups are exclusive like AARP, the NAACP, the Organi- National Organization for Women and so on. The Boy Scouts have sacrificed their identity to the absolutist vision of inclusion often found on the left well that vision will be the death of any group that seeks to define itself by any unique trait definitions are by necessity exclusionary and any group that defines itself as a and not b will face pressure from the left to embrace b as well except then there's no point of having a group at all well i'll just be absorbed into the all-consuming impulse to include everyone The crusade for inclusion will redefine and undefine every group it touches. Ironically, such radical inclusion is the death of any real diversity, because without real difference, there can be no diversity. By the way, the Mormon Church has withdrawn from the organization, or will shortly uh, do so, and they have been a major uh, backbone of the Boy Scouts of America. Now, when the announcement was made some time back, we interviewed the founder of Trail Life USA, the CEO, Mark Hancock. He's a former advertising executive turned professional counselor who founded the uh, organization when the Boy Scouts of America decided they were going to go a different direction. He stepped forward, drawing wide support. He established Trail Life USA, a faith-based outdoor adventure program offering the kind of boys-only character and leadership development opportunities that are necessary to learn what it really means to be a man, all in the right context. Well, rapidly growing membership has boomed even more in the past few months since the Boy Scouts of America dropped its longtime boys-only policy. So if you're looking for a uh, an alternative, you might want to consider... Uh, Another organization that is very similar, Trail Life USA. So just something to think about. Um, The venues have now been announced. Christian News Northwest published them in this uh, latest edition. Venues have been announced for... Um, the Franklin Graham Northwest Tour. Seven dates in August were announced earlier, but specific times and venues are now also known for evangelist Franklin Graham's Decision America Pacific Northwest Tour in Oregon and Washington. All the events are going to begin at 730 p.m. They hold that in common. The Oregon portion of the tour will begin on Wednesday, August the 1st at the Jackson County Fairgrounds and Exposition Park in Medford. On Friday, August the 3rd, it continues at Christian Life Center's Life Amphitheater in Bay. Then in Portland, uh, it concludes at the Clackamas County Exposition Grounds in Canby on Sunday, August the 5th. In Washington, a portion of the tour starts on Tuesday, August the 7th at Richland's Columbia Point Marina Park in the uh, the Tri-Cities. It then continues Thursday, August the 9th at the Spokane County Fair and Expo Center. Then on Sunday, August the 12th at uh, Cheney Stadium, Stadium in Tacoma. The final event here in the Pacific Northwest in Washington is Monday, August the 13th at Evergreen Speedway and Fairgrounds in Monroe. Well, joining Graham at all these Northwest events, except one, will be popular Christian musician Jeremy Camp performing instead of Camp on August the 5th. That's the uh, Portland uh, area event, will be the afters. Well, the Decision America Tour was born in 2016 when uh, Franklin Graham visited capital cities in all 50 states, challenging Christians to lead lives rooted in biblical principles and to pray earnestly for America. In total, more than 230,000 people attended the 50 rallies. Well, last year, he continued the tour by going back to Tennessee and Texas, drawing 70,000 people to outdoor venues in 11 cities. Well, he's going to hold 10 events throughout California this month before the Pacific Northwest Tour. He plans to keep the momentum going next year with tours stopping in uh, the northeastern part of the country. Franklin Graham said he is focusing attention on the West Coast this year out of a desire to proclaim the truth of the gospel in the three states, which he noted is increasingly becoming one of the most popular secular areas of the Nation. For more information, by the way, you can go to PNW, that's Pacific Northwest, PNW.billygram.org. Franklin Graham, continuing the legacy of his now deceased father. All right. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to remind you that tomorrow being Friday, our intent is that we will lighten up and focus on the lighter side of the news. So I hope you will join us. want to uh, thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program. And maybe tomorrow we can explain what's uh, happened here. We've had some personnel shifts. Everybody's still in the building, but just in different chairs. So we'll talk more about that tomorrow. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Again, hope we'll talk again tomorrow. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at KPDQ.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on ninety-three point nine KPDQ